Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, it's Zach Shiner, and it is August 2023. It is an exciting time to be a part of ECPR. Lots of stuff going on. Today, we're going to talk to Nicole Bosson from Los Angeles County and what she's doing with their ECPR receiving centers. But before we get there, I got a couple of announcements. Yesterday, super cool conversation with Dr. Albert Lande. If you know your ECMO history, he is he's one of the pillars. He invented one of the first oxygenators, the Lande Edwards oxygenator. And you know, even though he's in his 90s, even though his eyesight is down, even though his mobility is down, he's still inventing. And what was super cool to me is he loves ED ECMO. He loves listening to us. So thank you, Dr. Lande, for all you're doing. He's actually going to try and make it out to Reanimate 9 this fall, and, uh, November 7th through the 9th, if any of you are interested in coming out. It's going to be a fantastic time. If you haven't been to Reanimate yet, oh, you got to come. I mean, it is... It is the real deal. Jason Bardos, Scott Weingart, we've got a, a number of different faculty that are going to be coming out and teaching eCPR. Uh, okay, so that's that. Next thing, though, some cool, like, didactic stuff. This last month, we had a case of May Thurner. If you remember from medical school, this is the idea that the right iliac artery, the right femoral artery, can obstruct the left iliac vein when it crosses proximally right, right after the bifurcation. And that has implications with ECMO cannulation because if you put in the right femoral artery catheter, it goes up past that, that into that area where the bifurcation is, then you can actually obstruct the left femoral vein catheter from going in. I've got this cool video that shows it uh, up in the cath lab. And, uh, and so I'll put that on Twitter and you can, you can take a look at it. Next thing is a great announcement from San Diego as we just started our own eCPR receiving centers. July 1st, we started. We've already had a handful of cases. This is going to take a look at whether emergency physicians can provide life-saving eCPR therapy for patients in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So the difference is that we have three receiving centers. We're using emergency physicians to cannulate. And the benefits are that we have a sustainable program. If you're, one of your docs leaves, one of your cardiologists leaves, one of your CT surgeon leaves, your ECMO program doesn't collapse. With this, you have advantages of timing. They're, they're, the physicians are immediately available. The disadvantages is that each of these physicians has less experience. And so what we're going to see is, does that make a huge difference? Does our survivorship decrease even though our availability increases? So we'll have some data for you over the next couple of years on that. All right, with that, let's get this going. Nicole Bossom. No, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so Nicole has headed up an amazing project. I mean, just an organizational, I don't want to call it nightmare, but like an organizational thing that would be a, just a huge project to try and get Los Angeles County on board to have some sort of structure to having ECPR involved in their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Nicole, can you just tell us a little bit about what's going on up in Los Angeles? Sure, I'm happy to. And it, I mean, it's been a been a many years in in the making and a lot of people involved. But uh, I, I think one of the biggest things about being such a huge system is starting small and growing from there. And so that's actually how how our program started. So it actually started as a pilot with two county fire units. So LA County Fire started a pilot with Cedar Sinai Medical Center to just identify patients who were in refractory V fib and might benefit from eCPR, which 
Cedars already had an established um, program and ability to do so. And so they they basically crafted this idea um, using a mechanical compression device to transport that patient rapidly over two seaters and potentially cannulate them. And from that grew a lot of interest in other departments and other hospitals that already had this resource uh, to uh, coordinate and collaborate to develop a pilot project. So um, we we convened, gosh, I wanna say in 2019 as a group with uh, three hospitals that had already established uh, eCPR programs, uh, basically four patients that just happened to be arriving, right? So if a patient happened to arrive, from EMS was a candidate, then they would uh, consider cannulation for those patients. And so over the course of a year, we developed a protocol that everyone agreed upon um, that was willing to implement. And also um, really importantly, a data set that people were willing to collect data on these patients so we could understand the impact on potential positives and negatives impacts on our our system. And then launched in um, the perfect time of spring 2020. Um, which uh, was great because <laughs> COVID basically shut us down almost immediately after we started. Um, so not well timed, but it gave us a lot of time to kind of continue. To we just kept meeting. We uh, we met monthly uh, as a group uh, just to continue to develop the processes and optimize the 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 protocol. And even with those early enrollments, there were a few patients over the course of the year, we we learned from those and continued to build on it. So I, I think that was one of the biggest things was the engagement we got from both the provider agencies in the field, as well as the hospitals to really work together to develop the pilot program. And, and I can't say, you know, I can't stress how much uh, that that was important to, to the success as as we've achieved thus far, um, obviously with a lot of challenges along the way. So great. And I think what the experience that you have is exactly what the world is looking for right now. Like we're trying, like we've got the the data out there that says this works. It says that in a well-organized system, you can have some pretty significant improvements in, in cardiac arrest survivorship. But the question is, how do you do that? And particularly, how do you do that in big cities? And I think these are things that I'd love to just talk over these next few minutes and about how, what are the things you learned? What were the specific things that we can take to the other cities? And uh, San Diego uh, definitely included in that of how do you organize a system of care to improve the out-of-hospital aspects and the in-hospital aspects of eCPR? Well, we're still learning, so I don't have all the answers there for sure. I I think, you know, one thing that's been both a criticism and a reason for our success is starting small, not just by the number of agencies and hospitals we involved, um, but also with our target population. And so, you know, we we were careful when we selected which patients we wanted to uh, offer this therapy to because we didn't want to potentially harm patients by prematurely transporting them from the scene early and potentially that they wouldn't even get the therapy or benefit from the therapy. So we really started with that refractory defib population, which has the best data, in my opinion, for um, for the potential benefit. That said, you know, we, we found over the course of these three years as we've evolved, certain other po- patient populations that have also benefited um, from just having these established programs, which have developed these multidisciplinary in-hospital teams, a a mechanism to activate right from the field so they get advanced notification 
uh, that the patient's arriving so that they can mobilize quickly. And these processes have helped them to potentially offer the therapy to other patients. And one other group that's really benefited uh, for us has been the PEA um, uh, arrests out of LAX, basically the massive PE patients. And they're pretty easy for our paramedics to spot. They, they, they present very you know, classically, and multiple of those patients have been routed to UCLA um, for um, eCPR. So, you know, starting small and then, you know, recognizing the potential other avenues to to utilize this therapy has been helpful. But I, I think we're all still stuck in this situation where we don't know for sure the population that will benefit. And that, and that whole population is still a bit unclear, which I think is why so many of these randomized trials, even though we know certain patients benefit and it's clearly a beneficial therapy, if if either one of us was in refractory VFib right now in the field, we would definitely want to be routed to um, to an eCPR center, which is why I'm a little disappointed that so far Hermosa Beach uh, cannot reach an eCPR center within 30 minutes. Um, but we'll we'll work on that in in LA County. But we we don't we don't really know all of the patients that could potentially benefit, and also you know, don't want to create harm. So that's, that's one of the things we've been working on is that balance. And so I, all that said, one of the biggest things that we've been working towards is reducing the time to cannulation. And in order to do that, we found that we needed to move sooner on scene. And when you need to move sooner, then you don't necessarily have all the data to say, is this patient, you know, a patient that needs eCPR. And so when we started our protocol, uh, we started with the idea that they would identify a patient that could potentially fit into the protocol by age, by the fact that they were initial shockable rhythm, that they didn't have any contraindications. They would apply the mechanical CPR device, initiate the defibrillations, and start packaging the patient. But then they wouldn't mobilize from the scene until the patient met refractory defib, which we, we noted to be three shocks and persistent uh, ventricular fibrillation or, or tachycardia. But that way of approaching it led to scene times that were longer than we wanted them to be and potentially uh, leading to patients getting there too late, right? And we had, I think in our initial publication, four patients that got there past the time, and that might have been the actual reason they didn't get cannulated. And so we said, how do we fix this? And um, talking with the folks over at MRC, which, you know, have really set the stage in the U.S. for this, um, it's really mobilizing after after two shocks from the from the scene. And we subsequently updated our protocol uh, to do that um, and to have them mobilized. But that does mean that some of our patients uh, get ROSC, sustained ROSC, um, or re-arrest. Um, and actually, the re-arrest population has been another population that we've recognized actually really benefits from this therapy. They may be even better candidates, right? They're they're in and out of um, they're in and out of arrest, and they they just can't support themselves and st- sustain ROSC. And that that eCPR can be a, a be a bridge for those patients as well. So now we are trying to collect data on these three populations to understand better. Uh, how we're using eCPR. Um, because I think the other thing, not to take any breaths here, sorry. Uh, the, the other thing that, uh, you know, or people who critique eCPR programs say, there's just not enough patients that are going to benefit, right? We're doing all of this for so few people. Um, 
But I do think that there are actually people out there that we are benefiting or could benefit that we're not even aware of yet. And we also want to understand how maybe developing these programs and focusing on high quality CPR and coordinated care in the field, notification of the hospital, all of the things that go into this and the post-resuscitation care element at the hospital, could this actually be benefiting patients who aren't receiving eCPR, right? This focus on the, the quality of resuscitation and post-resuscitation care and the ability to actually think I might save this person, right? Could that influence the care of other patients who may not get put on the, you know, the ECMO device, but also potentially have a benefit. So we're trying to explore that with our data, but that's a really challenging question to answer. Wow. So much to unpack in there. I'm I'm so glad that you went into several of those different topics. One of them being the PEA patient. I mean, it's such a good patient. And I just was thinking about how close UCLA is to LAX there and Cedars isn't that far as well. So that patient population, uh, yeah, for us is also a good a good percentage of our survivorship. I, in the editorial, I'm going to put in the in the show notes both the paper uh, from LA as well as the editorial from Jason Bardos. Uh, Jason puts in a graph in there that I love. I love when he places this this graph because it kind of talks about how as you increase your inclusion, you're going to have decreased survivor, but you're going to have more survivors. And so when we look at survivorship in all these pa- in all these papers, we have to really compare it to expected survival. So if you're going to take the VF population, you have one expected survival. If you're going to take the PEA expected population, you're going to have a different survivorship. But you might really have benefit in all of those patients. So that is the the, the question that we really need to assess in these patients uh, or in these trials. So Nicole, you also uh, unpacked a little bit about how you started small and you you kind of use this certain inclusion criteria. You saw, You talked about collateral benefits right? Each of the hospitals are now taking resuscitation seriously. They're also having the ability to do ECMO on patients that they previously would not have, even if they don't come in via the trial. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, we've always uh, left open the concept of judgment in terms of the patients who either get transported to these centers or also if they arrive at that center, would they be placed on, on eCPR? And one of the challenges in our system has been that it really is up to the ECMO team whether or not they place that patient on on uh, whether they cannulate and place that patient on eCPR and so that does create some you know variability uh, across the system and we haven't tried as a as an EMS agency as a regulatory agency kind of overseeing the system we haven't tried to regulate that in any way in terms of the decision making on the part of the um, ECMO team and the the way in which they approach cannulation obviously can also be um, something to be considered. We we really haven't gotten to that level of detail. We did we did reach a, a consensus on some of the general negative prognostic indicators that would drive a decision not to cannulate with the idea that patients who didn't have those really should be mostly cannulated. And I think there was a good agreement, but that was really driven by the group and a and a, a group consensus rather than us saying, you know, this is who you should cannulate or this is who you shouldn't cannulate. But we did want them to all agree to these are the patients we will consider and we'll receive that notification from the field and the field the, the EMS clinicians, and I think this is a really important point too, they make the decision to go. That was something we really had to um, 
emphasize as we moved along, realizing that if the EMS clinicians, the paramedics in the field weren't empowered to make the decision to just go, that was also leading to delays. But once they get there, right, then it's then it's up to the ECMO team to say, who are we going to cannulate? And that means they may or may not fit our exact definition of the refractory BFib patient that we initially intended the therapy for. Okay, so let's include the inclusion criteria. Let's go through that. So 15 to 75, a uh, little bit uh, older and a little bit younger than maybe, but at least for what we do in San Diego, but that was, that's great. A lot old, lot more inclusion than Netherlands, which who I think is like 55 is their, their upper max. Uh, you included VF patients, but no, nothing in there about bystander CPR witnessed. You said, if it's VF, we're going to go. Is that right? That's correct. And the 15 is a little strange, but that's because that's how we define adult um, for EMS protocols in, in LA County. And so just from a logistical standpoint, differentiating that age, and it seemed reasonable that teenagers who were not responding to uh, the um, initial therapy could benefit or initial field resuscitation could benefit from eCPR. So we we use that criteria. And the 75 is definitely a negotiation. I think the primary target up to 65, but you know, we have had successes with patients older than that. And you know, we know the median age for cardiac arrest is 65. So um, to exclude everyone uh, above that, you know, seems like a shame because people are, you know, having extended health spans as well as lifespans. Um, I think there's definitely a group that can that can benefit if they are otherwise healthy. Um, and yeah, we didn't include um, the requirement that they have bystander CPR or witness. I think there's two two reasons for that. One is we were really trying to mirror the MRC criteria. Um, and also that, that is a really difficult metric, the bystander CPR. We, um, you know, some of uh, the uh, physicians over at LAFD had uh, demonstrated there's a huge discordance between when the dispatcher notes that someone's doing bystander CPR and when the paramedics arrive, um, whether or not they note that someone was doing bystander CPR, whether it's they stop when the paramedics arrive, whether they get up to open the door, um, just frankly, that alone seemed like a, you know, a tough, hard stop versus if you're in VFib and you continue to be in VFib, well, that's to me a sense that you you still have, you know, some perfusion to allow that heart to continue fibrillating. And that's a potential, um, you know, patient who may still have a, a viable neurologic outcome. And so we went with, with that um, broader approach. Excellent. Okay. Yes. So totally. And the MRC, just for those out there, Minneapolis, this is the crew that's really changed the game. And uh, we referenced them many times. I noticed that also you, you adopted a lot of that for the, when they get to the hospital about the same kind of inclusion criteria with lactate. Uh, The other thing that you've mentioned is about changing it from three shocks to two shocks. I know it sounds like minutia, but this is, this is super important. I mean, that, that timeframe to get off the scene is key and we actually chose two two shocks as well down in san diego because we think that when you look at the survivorship of vf once you get past that second shock you really are meeting that area where we were talking about initially are you benefiting the patient more are you harming the patient by transporting them and after that second shock i do think that is the appropriate time to start loading and go and getting them in the in the ambulance and getting them to the hospital because those, that that time frame of how long it takes you from initial arrest to getting them on pump is so critical for their survivorship. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And that was a, you know, something that we needed to kind of make that shift to actually start meeting our target of 15 minutes or less on scene, which we we finally met um on patients once we we moved that that target to to mobilizing after two shots. But I think importantly, uh, one thing that we have insisted upon is the mechanical compression device, which even though the the studies don't show a neurologic benefit from mechanical compression devices, utilizing those during transport um, allows for both the continuation of, of quality CPR as long as they're monitored effectively, and also um, the safety for the paramedics when they're transporting. So I think that's an important piece that's also um, been a limiting piece in terms of potentially expanding to other uh, EMS provider agencies, because that's a, a cost, right? To both, in, you know, purchase the devices, implement the training, um, et cetera. So that's that's been uh, something that we've had a, a hard line on that everyone needs to have a mechanical compression device to participate. Okay, two things. You said you empowered the medics to make the decision. I want you to speak on that. And then I also noticed just in reference to what you just said, you had rendezvous mechanical chest compression devices, right? Supervisors that were taking these to the scene. Tell me about that, those two things. Yes, absolutely. So the first concept was we we had noticed, and this comes back to our monthly meetings. So at our monthly meetings that we've been having since the start of the study, we, we look at each um, enrollment, each patient that's transported, and we kind of discuss together what the challenges were, what the time intervals are. Um, what ultimately happened to the patient. So we all learn from each of the enrollments, especially because they're relatively rare. It's been a very effective way to identify um, ways to improve. And one of the things that was noted was that the discussion with the, the base hospital, which we use for the online medical direction, um, which was meant to really be a push of information to notify them that the patient was coming and was an eCPR candidate, uh, that was leading to a discussion point of, okay, when do we mobilize? When do we go? Does the patient meet all the criteria? And that was slowing things down. So by saying to the paramedics, you make the decision to go, you notify the base hospital as you're rolling. So it's not more a discussion about decision-making, but rather we've identified this patient as an eCPR candidate. We have applied the Lucas or, you know, Autopulse. Um, all of the agencies in our particular pilot are using Lucas. Um, just because that was their choice, uh, and mobilizing the patient, um, then that, that prevented that delay of the discussion on scene. So that was really important. The rendezvous system was a solution for a larger agency, which was LAFD, um, to be able to participate and offer this therapy to patients, particularly around LA General, our, our one of our county hospitals, and certainly a, a population that we wanted to be able to reach, um, they didn't have the funding or ability to put a mechanical compression device on all of their ALS units, which is well over 100 units. So what they did instead was say, we're going to put the mechanical compression device on the EMS captain unit and dispatch them to the cardiac arrest, which they were already dispatching to the cardiac arrest. So they would then arrive shortly into the resuscitation and be able to apply the mechanical compression device for those patients who met our criteria and, and then transport. So it was an alternate model of um, deployment. And I will say it's been it's been kind of a mixed bag, right? Like there are definitely times where the EMS captain was not able to arrive on scene, uh, and that patient therefore could not benefit from the mechanical compression device transport to the hospital, and 
you know, critical decisions had to be made about how to manage in those situations. Um, so it's it's a funding issue more than anything. I think having the the mechanical compression device on every unit is ideal. But if you can't do that, is it better to have a potential deployment such that you can get to the majority of those potential patients versus not doing it at all or having, you know, a mechanical compression device on a few of the units that may or may not be responding to the cardiac arrest where your patient um, is in refractory VF. So that was, um, it's a model that we've been using with the uh, intention of that agency to eventually purchase mechanical compression devices for all their units. Awesome. Yeah. Tough decisions. Tell me about the rollout. Tell me how you got the medics to buy in. How did they, how did you educate them to, to, because that's like the real thrust of this whole thing, like Los Angeles, traffic, E- huge EMS systems, huge amount of um, ALS providers. Uh, how did you educate in a way that made this actually work? Yeah, and to this, I'm really speaking to the work of others, right? So because of our system, I'm at the EMS agency. We're the regulatory oversight agency. I don't work for any of the provider agencies. Each of those agencies has their own medical director. They have their own nurse educators. It was really the nurse educators that um, spearheaded the trainings and you know galvanized all the, the paramedics to be engaged in this. And particularly uh, Shane Cook, who's at County Fire, was really one of the first. Um, him and I know Scott Topial has been involved as well. Um, set the stage for how the trainings went down and shared that information with the other agencies as they came on board. There was a lot of collaboration across the different nurse educators to to implement the trainings. Um, I think ultimately the paramedics are excited about a potential therapy to save these patients. They have been frustrated like we have, um, you know, resuscitating patients who are younger, healthier, and have sudden cardiac death. And there's nothing that can be done. They're just not responding. And I honestly feel like this therapy, something that can be done to actually, um, you know, change the outcome, change the course, someone who would be dead is now alive and and walking out of the hospital. I I think they see the value in this hugely um, because they're the ones doing the work. They're the ones trying to resuscitate these patients in the field and, and having to, you know, tell that family like this, didn't work, right? So having this uh, has been really important. And one of the ways in which we've tried to just continue to encourage that enthusiasm, in addition to, you know, updated trainings and things, is to share the results, to share the outcomes of these patients. And our data flow is such that the as soon as the hospital enters the outcome on the patient, the, the provider agency receives that result. And there's constant exchange about each of these patients between the hospital and the nurse educators at that agency so they can share that information back to the crew and the crew gets that feedback, you know, that the patient was or was not put on eCPR, that the patient survived. Um, And that's been really positive. We had a a system-wide webinar in May where we um, kind of highlighted some of the successful cases and also some of the challenges and the way we've been working through them as a system. And it was really well received. So we're, we're just trying to you know, feed that positivity back to the paramedics who are doing the work and 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 saving these these patients really because it's it's their quality resuscitation that keeps the patient perfused and you know the brain perfused until they can get on the ECPR. And without that, the patient's not going to do well. So I feel like that's just it's just about you know them getting that feedback that that, that what everything they're doing is really beneficial for the patient. It's really about the, the the teamwork that makes this work. 
Totally agree. I mean, the, my experience with the medics is the same. They are so uh, enthusiastic about resuscitation. I mean, I tell them they are the resuscitationists, right? If you look at cardiac arrest survivorship, it's about them getting to the patient, getting the defibrillator on, shocking them out of VF. And then for these refractory patients, is there something else we can do? And yes, there is now something we can do for these refractory patients. So uh, I love how you've empowered the, the medics. I love how you've educated them primarily with nurses. Now, any physicians, do they go out and do go to the ambulance agencies or how did any of that? Right. So uh, it is a LA County system that um, we have, in addition to the provider agency medical directors, we have nurse educators at every agency. And that's just been something that has been an LA, um, you know, system thing forever. We also have nurses called mobile intensive care nurses that answer the radio and provide uh, medical direction. So nurses are a really important and integral part of our uh, EMS system and education and and uh, medical direction for paramedics. Uh, but each of those agencies has a medical director and the, those medical directors not only drive the education, um, but th they're participating in these monthly calls as well. So we really have engagement at all the levels in terms of uh, being involved. And I, I had the, the the privilege of going out and seeing one of these trainings as well. And so they're really nicely done. And, and so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a group effort uh, entirely. Totally agree. And then San Diego are the same. Yeah. San Diego fire and Falk. I mean, they just, their education systems are very organized and very, very well done. Uh, okay. So let's get into a little bit more. We, we talked a little bit about inclusion. You, you allowed the uh, medics to bring the patients, the patients come to the hospital and now primarily using the Minneapolis criteria with lactate greater than 18 and tidal CO2 less than 10, uh, pulse ox less than 85%, you could exclude some patients. Is that right? That was the consensus we reached with our ECMO teams, but I, I can't emphasize enough that they're really making the decision on the individual patients. So uh, we did not uh, necessarily prescribe, this is who will get cannulated. Um, when the patient arrives, the ECMO team uh, evaluates the patient and makes the ultimate decision to cannulate. And we we did uh, agree on those general criteria based on the MRC data that they demonstrate uh, more, uh, you know, poor prognostic indicators. But that none said, of the places uh, were yeah. obligated to use that as an inclusion criteria. Is that right? They, they are not obligated. Obli it was okay. A, a consensus agreement that those would be the things that would be considered as as factors as part of the decision making. And we do try to capture the decision making because you know a lot of our patients are ultimately not getting cannulated. We have about thirty percent of our patients routed get cannulated, which I, I think that you know, it's fair, right? Especially as we move towards earlier mobilization, some of the patients aren't getting cannulated because they have sustained ROSC. Other patients, there's additional information learned about their um, past medical history or reasons why they may not be good candidates uh, for ACPR. And these poor prognostic indicators just factor into that decision-making. Right. Now, uh, and I, this is, we educate our medics as well, saying, hey, listen, you're going to do all this work you're going to bring this patient to us and then we're not going to put them on two thirds of the time. So just be ready for that, that letdown, knowing that you got to play the numbers and the percentage of these patients are going to walk out of the hospital neurologically intact. So that's fantastic. Now let's talk about your cannulators. How did you, I know there was some, uh, there wasn't, this wasn't hard and fast, but each of the hospital systems set up how they cannulated the patient differently. Is that right? Right, because we actually started the program on the concept that these uh, hospitals had already established 
uh, an eCPR program. So they had uh, an ECMO uh, capabilities and they had uh, established a, a way in which they could place patients in cardiac arrest on ECMO. Uh, so th those internal programs had developed somewhat differently with um, two of our hospitals cannulating in the emergency department and then transporting to the cath lab. And, and as an aside, just we did require that all our patients would go to the cath lab uh, immediately in order to identify the potential reversible cause. Um, because, you know, obviously that was our ultimate goal was this is a bridge to something that could definitively improve the patient. Uh, and one of our hospitals utilizing an approach where the medics go directly or basically with a quick assessment in the ED up to the cath lab, and then the patient gets cannulated in the cath lab by the cardiology team. So it, these were internal programs that were developed with, frankly, those that were, um, you know, spearheading the, the effort, right? So if it came out of cardiology, if it came out of cardiovascular surgery or trauma surgery, that that kind of defined how the program developed. And we as a system didn't try to tell a hospital exactly how to do it, but we did come up with some factors that we felt were really important to a successful program. And, and part of that was, you know, demonstrating already that you had, a, you know, a, a quality uh, cardiac program, right? So we, we already designate these hospitals as STEMI receiving centers. They already receive 100% of our cardiac arrests and our STEMI patients. So were they meeting metrics for our uh, STEMI patients in terms of their door to, to balloon times and things like that, showing that they already had established uh, cardiac programs and then a collaboration. So it wasn't just about, well, this is the ED and the ED loves this and they're going to cannulate and then what, right? Where does the patient go from there? So a collaboration between the emergency department, the cardiologist, the intensivist, the neurologist. So this was a continuum and really a program that went across disciplines. So that was another important thing. Um, and, the, and the willingness to uh, both consider the patients that we had identified, we didn't want um, patients to be coming and not getting considered for um, for ECMO, uh, the pre-notification system and to activate the team to be ready to receive the patient, and then the data collection so that we as a system could understand, are you achieving what, what, we, um, what we set out to do in terms of our time metrics and our outcomes? Um, you know, and it's descriptive study. We're not randomizing. We're not saying you get ECMO, you're not. We're just watching, learning, trying to improve together. Um, and having the data and, be, and being willing to share that data was really, really important so that we could all um, improve. So we didn't even, you know, we didn't look at how they were cannulating. We don't even look at, and this could be a criticism, we don't look at time from arrival to puncture and puncture to flow. We just look at time of arrival to flow on ECMO, right? So th those internal um, quality metrics are important. Um, to the program, and and we we expect that they are in fact engaging in their own quality improvement and and uh, insurances processes. But uh, from a system standpoint, we want to know: did we get that patient on on eCPR within our target time frame, and what are our outcomes in terms of survival? Survival with good neurologic outcome, and I've been very happy that the patients who are surviving are surviving with good neurologic outcome. I think that's really the key. Uh, we don't want this to be, um, as the ethicist called it, like the bridge to nowhere, right? We want this to be survival with good neurologic outcome, um, you know, and and that is something that we've really been focusing on. Okay, a lot of stuff in there. And the, the last part about neurologically intact survivorship, I only see this 
pretty much everywhere. Like every, that's a big criticism. You're going to put people on, they're going to be brain dead. We just don't see that. We don't see that in any, in any of the papers and in your paper included all of your, your patients that survived were neurologically intact. In fact, the only non-neurologically intact survivorship patient you had didn't even get ECMO. So, uh, you, you know, you can have the criticism that, but I think that's, that's not a big criticism. The other one that uh, you brought up in your paper too, which I love is that they weren't on ECMO for very long. They're only on ECMO for like two and a half days and their ICU stays were com comparable. So, um, the idea that you're just going to bombard the ICUs with these patients is, is not upheld with your study as well. Back to the cannulators. Okay. So, and just so I know the, there were three hospitals. It seems like it was either cardiology or CT surgery that did the cannulation. Is that correct? Right. And so, and we now have a fourth hospital. So that was a whole nother learning experience was bringing on another center that to meet all these criteria. Um, and that hospital also uses cardiologists um, to, to cannulate as well. In fact, it, it really does vary because it's not just CV surgery. Um, one of our cannulators is an anesthesiologist by training, but he's on the, the eCPR team. Um, we do not have um, ED physicians cannulating at any of the sites, to my knowledge, as of this point. There has been some discussion, but at this point, uh, there are either uh, CV surgeons, anesthesiologists, cardiologists uh, cannulating, whether or not it's in the ED or in the cath lab. Yeah, you commented on like kind of trying to cut off each little minute that you could possibly cut off. And in your your scene times, I mean, your times you put in the paper, eight minutes to the to call to scene, 19 minutes on the scene. Okay, so you can maybe cut off a few minutes there. Transport time is 16 minutes, hard to change much of that, especially when you're in Los Angeles. But then this last one is, I mean, it is a little bit of stuff to think about the 31 minutes to cannulation because, uh, you know, the MRC, theirs is six minutes and that's just, I mean, it's outrageous. It's unbelievable. They're, they're, they're just a step above all of the rest of us, but, um, but 31 minutes, you know, that's, that is a big chunk of time. And is there a way that we could actually decrease that? Cause I think if you look at the survivorship of the MRC data, you see that it's that 30 minute to like 45 minute sweet spot that if you can get them on pump in that time, then the survivorship is phenomenal. And then you get down into still good survivorship at the 20 to 30%, um, maybe closer to the hour. But any comments on that as far as that time frame, the time from arrival to the hospital to initiation onto the pump? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and obviously, it's hard to beat MRC. They, they really have set the bar high. Uh, we um, you know, this was not, to be fair, our initial real focus of shortening time. We were very focused, especially, you know, coming from the EMS perspective, right, on how do we get the patient mobilized to the hospital faster. And really with this um, look at our initial data as, as, a, as a whole, we recognize that that in-hospital component um, you know, not that we didn't know it was important before, but that that is another target. And so um, something that we've been engaging in more focus on. What is interesting when we look at those numbers and I look at them even, you know, now past this publication, we've had a lot more enrollments, is there's a huge span. So the range is huge. Some patients are getting on within you know, less than 10 minutes for sure. Um, and other patients are, it's much longer. And, you know, one of the questions we were having is, is it decision-making time as much as it is cannulating time? And obviously some patients are going to be challenging to cannulate, but are there other things that are contributing to these kind of uh, patients who are taking a lot longer, but it, it's a huge range. And so I think that you're absolutely right. That is an area that we need to focus on. Um, and we still have not 
to be fair to the criticisms, we are not meeting that under 60 minutes consistently. We are still trying to get there. And I mean, that's kind of how we need to work towards better, right? We, when we started our STEMI systems, we weren't perfect, right? We're moving towards improvement. I, I think to just say, well, let's not do this because we're not perfect yet, but we have all these patients who are surviving, right? So how do we get better, right? And you can only get better if you're if you're actively trying to do it and improve on it. So um, that's something that we are working on um, and recognize that, you know, there, there's definitely room to continue to improve and potentially, therefore, have more patients that can actually get this therapy and then survive. Spot on. I love it. Uh, you know, the time to initiation also is involved with how available that physician is, the cannulator at that specific time. We saw this in the Netherlands where you know they were having to call people in and the times were just massive. And so this is this is one of the questions. This is one of the big questions in the world right now. Like who should cannulate? Do they need to be immediately available? Do they do they need to have access to a cath lab to do this? Uh, and Los Angeles is a great example of like trying to figure it out. And and what's I think maybe one of the biggest take homes from your whole study is that you had iterative change is that you learned on the role. Like you, you said, okay, this didn't work. We need to, we need to cut the, the EMS times down. How do we get better enrollment? Like all these things are, they're part of the deal. We have to learn on the run about how your city is going to be able to optimize this care. No, and I think you're absolutely right. I, I think there's a balance, right? You don't want so many people doing this that they don't have any experience with it because it's such a rare thing. But at the same time, if you don't have the cannulator is available immediately, you're going to miss out on that um, opportunity to help that patient. So a balance is really important. And I think, you know, we have definitely had challenges at some places where, you know, there's only one or two people doing it. How do you, how do you make sure that they, they just work 24 seven, basically? Right? I mean, they're just on call all the time. Um, our pre-notification has been hugely important because we have successfully been able to mobilize the teams to meet the patient there, even when they're not always immediately in, you know, they're not the ED physicians, so they have to move to the ED. Um, that pre-notification has been very helpful, but I, I don't know that we've we've optimized it yet in terms of balancing that idea of having enough cannulators that are very comfortable with the procedure and can affect it well um, and always be available. Yeah, it's a tough, and this is in San Diego, this is what we're, we're working on right now. So we'll, we'll be the antithesis of that. We have you know, almost a hundred cannulators now for three different sites, all ER physicians and, and also cardiologists and CT surgeons as well. Um, and so we'll, we'll see, well, you know, how does this data match up and how do we get the best outcomes? Because we're going to have, there's high risk for complication in these patients, no matter how you look at it. And if you have decreased experience in cannulation, then, then probably the cannulation complications are going to go up. Now, even just to, to take one second also to look at capture, so for this study, it was during COVID, so it kind of makes it, un, un, you're unable to really assess how much you captured, but, uh, but 11, 11 eCPR patients in two years, is that right? Yeah, so, so there weren't a lot of patients, and I, that, um, the question has come up, like, are we missing? Do we, do we really understand our denominator? Um, we have put multiple things in place, uh, ways of capturing these patients. So we we do believe we had a significant reduction. I know a lot of people uh, or a lot of systems noted this around the country and around the world in initial shockable rhythms during COVID. And it just really dropped for us. Um, 
So I think part of it is that part of it is actually it's a small geographic area, ultimately, in L.A. County that is uh, is um, participating because they have to be within 30 minutes of, of one of those ECPR centers. And this is based on the three centers, kind of some of which there's some overlap. And so um, we we did have our uh, provider agencies evaluating through their um, screening processes for any patient who might be refractory VFib that could have been missed, right? So that we can provide that feedback back to the paramedics as well. Say, hey, this was a potential candidate that you hadn't recognized and trying to, you know, capture all of those patients in the database. So a lot of our patients in our data set didn't get cannulated, but it's a patient either that was recognized and routed and ultimately didn't get cannulated for whatever reason, or occasionally a patient who was in refractory VF and didn't have any contraindications that wasn't even recognized. Um, we also have the hospital, the base hospital um, uh, MICMs who review their calls. They will also feedback, hey, this was a candidate. So we try to use multiple mechanisms to make sure we've captured all potential patients. And now, as I said, we're kind of expanding that to understand a broader pool of potential patients, not necessarily routing all of those patients, um, uh, you know, directly to the CPR center, but understanding when they are routed, what's happening to those patients. So it's not a blind spot for us. Um, but it has been a small number of patients for such a big system. So the question is, is how do we expand without causing harm? And so the addition of our Long Beach Medical Center to the um, pilot has been really um, significant in increasing enrollments because that's an entirely uh, new geographic area for which we've been able to offer the therapy. And I think they've had about 20 enrollments um, since they started, not everyone getting eCPR, but 20 patients with potential meeting the criteria routed um, to Long Beach uh, since January when they came on. Um, and we've actually seen an increase in the number of refractory VFib patients over the past uh, six months to a year too. So I, I feel like the trajectory is definitely towards an, a, a more patience to potentially benefit. Now we just have to, you know, continue to, you know, improve our processes so that they can actually, you know, get the CPR and benefit from the outcome. Well, Nicole, massive kudos to you and your organization and your whole crew. I mean, you took, you took, uh, you know, multiple academic centers. And academic centers don't always play well together, and uh, and and you put them together. I mean, this is this is actually fairly unique. It's not. It's there's most of the world is most is based on one significant hospital that's kind of taking the charge, and you have now organized four different, completely different uh, health systems to to be able to play together and take these patients and improve outcomes. Anything last? If you if if you just kind of picture that, I think there are uh, so many people on this podcast that listen that are in this throes of kind of where you've been. Meaning, I have my city, I've got some structure in place. Uh, I'm kind of getting frustrated in various places. Um, would you? What would be the one piece of advice that you would give to people trying to set up their programs out there? Well, I, I think because I'm taking a very systems perspective, I would say, you know, first and foremost, don't try to do it in a silo with your, you know, one hospital or one agency. Right? Really, I think the the success of our program thus far has been the fact that we started out with just a group collaboration, talking through the entire process and trying to implement it in a really coordinated fashion so that we can reach the, you know, eventually reach the entire community, right? Right now, we're we're kind of incrementally getting there. And so, you know, to that end, I would say, you know, just this takes a huge village. And I 
appreciate you inviting me on to talk about it, but obviously it's also been, you know, a lot of people that contributed to this effort. And Clayton Kazan, for example, as the medical director of County Fire, started the first, what he called Arrive Alive, potentially a misnomer, but um, Arrive Alive pilot for uh, for this whole project to take off. And then uh, Dave Chevelle being uh, my uh, co-PI for the study, um, who you know started two of the four eCPR programs. So that collaboration between EMS and in-hospital has been so huge. Um, and then all of the medical directors and nurse educators from all the provider agencies and, you know, the ECMO teams at the hospital. The fact that everyone's participating and contributing and wanting to work through this together as a system has really been, um, you know, the huge value uh, to, to making this move forward. Thank you, Nicole. We so appreciate having you on the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> All right, so much in there, so much good stuff. Nicole, thank you. Hey, next month, we're gonna have Vadim Gudzenko. He's the anesthesiologist that Nicole mentioned in this podcast, who helped cannulate and help structure the program over at UCLA. So you get to hear Nicole, pre-hospital side, all the organizational system side, and then you're gonna hear Vadim telling us kind of more about like, what's it like inside being an ECPR center in Los Angeles. All right, with that, signing off.